Psychology in Art of our Sight and Insight podcast. My name is Judy Curtis and with me today we have the artist Lawen, Connie Nagel and also David P. Curtis. Uh, and we've just finished our coffee and we've been just discussing how we're going to approach this interesting subject of psychology of art or psychology in art or psychology of art, we think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or psychology and art. Oh, psychology and art. Even better. Thank you, Carney. <laughs> uh, so as you can see, that this is obviously not a subject I know a great deal about. Um, but I do believe there's a lot of psychology in, uh, in the art of creating anything. You know, dance, music, art, writing. Um, and in my case, I always find that... Uh, Sitting down at the uh, computer screen or a piece of paper and I have to write something, I, I totally go blank. I, and it's very difficult to get over that, that first obstruction or roadblock into um, getting the creative juices flowing. Sometimes it's very difficult to make the start. So I'm going to be uh, asking our, uh, our artists here how they go about making a start. But... Uh, to begin with, I'd just like to uh, give you one of these uh, famous quotes that I like to look up. Uh, and so we have uh, Nietzsche said in Thus Spake Zarathustra, one must still have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. And so I think that's, when you think about it, yeah, out of chaos we can release something that's beautiful. So, Connie, let's go to you first. Um, can psychology help an artist paint a better painting? Um, you know, how, how do you go, how do you make a start? Can, do you need it at the beginning? Do you need it at the end, in the middle? Mm. Or do you need it the whole, through the whole experience of painting? Well, that's a good question. So, um, psychology isn't going to help. Uh, I think understanding yourself, um, which is sort of the basis of psychology. I mean, psychology is... Uh, I think it's it's often overlooked, but psychology is the study of the soul, the psyche, and um, and we've gotten in, you know, in the past 40 years, I'd say, especially um, there's a lot on psychotherapy and on um, how you can change your lifestyle and and improve your uh, uh, things, you know, like relationships and things like that. However. In, in bringing psychology to uh, oil painting, I would say that understanding aspects of yourself and, and recognizing certain uh, ways in which you uh, benefit from painting um, help us to understand who we are. Um, I, I think, too, uh, you might think about that there are always roadblocks and, and certain things that, that prevent us from fully creating or, or expressing ourselves in painting. And um, I think that looking at the, the, the things that really um, upset a painter can help them to... Uh, to get a little more confidence in them in their painting abilities and and to sustain their their painting process from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, that's a good start into into this subject because 
Um, I think it's, it's interesting because psychology, I think, is so important these days because uh, we live in difficult times. I think if we could all understand ourselves better, never mind other people, maybe we'd be all happier. But David, I know that Jung was a big influence on you um, early on because after we got married, you made me read all his books, uh, which actually was very interesting. I was a bit concerned to begin with because I had to read paragraphs over and over to get understand what he was trying to say. But in actual fact, it did make me want to look at it a bit deeper. And in the end, um, I was reading um, Women Who Dance With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, which I thought was really... Fabulous book. It's a great yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. For, particularly for women who I think sometimes want to paint or want to write, want to create, uh, and they can't because they're busy. They've got to look after the house, the kids perhaps a job uh, and I think a lot of women get frustrated because they can't get that creative part uh, they can't satisfy it and I thought that this uh, particular book and uh, I believe Estes is a, a Jungian um, yes. psychologist to begin with so yeah. it all goes back to Carl Jung um, so David what would you uh, like to offer about how it influenced you well Jung uh, I think I started reading Jung uh, it was very popular in the late 60s, Carl Jung, that whole movement of uh, uh, sort of back to nature. Uh, and Jung offered things, I think maybe he was looked down upon by some of the, uh, his contemporaries for being a little too of a mystical or an occultist. He was accused of those kind of things, but I thought he really touched upon the heart of, uh, of an artist, of a creative person. And if, um, if he, a lot of his patients probably were frustrated creative people who went to him to uh, turn the block a, a away from him. Uh, but anyway, my teacher, Ives Gamble, started me off with uh, interesting me in reading Carl Jung. And just as you said, I had to read it over and over again. Just, I think I read Symbols of Transformation, uh, I don't know, three or four times before it made any sense at all. <laughs> Uh, because there's, there's a lot of science involved, there's a lot of biology involved, and I was more interested in the, the sort of the artistic, the creative side of things, which he touched on a lot. And I think he, he uh, alone inspired me, not as when I first started out, I was going to be a studio painter. So when I made the decision to try landscape out in the 70s, uh, moving to, back to Gloucester, to practice my landscapes. I would say it was that uh, constant diet of reading psychological uh, manuscripts of, uh, of Jung's that really, really helped to inspire me to come up with something that would be um, introspective that I was interested in and uh, something that I thought produced uh, interesting paintings. I was gonna also mention that uh, a lot of people may not know who Carl Jung is. And um, he was a, a famous psychologist who actually studied with, with Sigmund Freud and um, broke away from Sigmund Freud in the late 1800s in that um, there was a lot about the unconscious and, and where that was coming from. Uh, Freud thought it was a sexual impulse and Jung took it into what he defined as the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. And the collective unconscious was a, 
what he was saying is that all people, um, no matter what age they were born in, um, kind of carry with them, sort of like the way we carry DNA, the mm-hmm. genetic code. We're also ca- carrying a certain kind of cultural collective kind of code. And it's all about humanity and civilization. And so he brought it into something that was much more creative, more uh, full of, uh, uh, of kind of creative expression, and uh, allowed people to really feel included in the entire world. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Connie. I just took it for granted that everybody would know who Jung was, but there may be people who don't understand his connections and, and why his psychology is important. The other thing, about, yeah, and the other thing about Jung is that uh, Freud never delved into art. Jung did. Mm-hmm. Jung did his own personal um, paintings. He did his own um, artistic expressions. He he did a lot on mandalas. He um, he was um, and a mandala is a circular. Uh, kind of uh, symbol in which um, you can put in all sorts of things, um, colors, patterns, things like that. But, uh, but his, his uh, whole set of uh, ways in which he was psychoanalyzing people had to do with creative self-expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the idea of the mandalas, I think, is interesting. I know you used to do a lot of mandalas, David, um, and I've tried, you know, there's, there's a lot of books where you can just go out and buy a book and just colour in the ones that are already there. Mm-hmm. Um, I take it you two have probably made your own mandalas. And mm-hmm. isn't that a psychological um, thing as well, that the shapes and the colours that you choose are expressing yeah. something that you want to... Just well, there's, there are also lots of books on dream psychology, and dream, and you can develop mandalas that that indicate a lot on about your dream, your dream world. And I think one way to start a mandala is to create the exterior as if it was sort of an enclosed uh, fence or mm-hmm. border and uh, that you have certain things that go inside that and then you have maybe another interior border Mm -hmm. and that is even the more interior psyche of yourself and you can put things in there you know a lot of times we talk about um, I used to talk about this when I was younger the golden box that I used to have a special thing in my heart for somebody or something and um, so in a mandala you can have several layers of borders Mm -hmm. and then have those and and symbolically place certain things it might be you might have a a symbol of your house your dog your cat your your wife your child you might have all kinds of and it's a way of also uh, allowing yourself to reframe certain psychological issues that may be troubling to you, but you can actually see them in a more holistic fashion. That's good. So, so do you work from the outside in or from the inside out, or doesn't it matter? I don't think it matters. I think it would be all according to the person. Yeah, yeah. You know, how so, they want to do that. Yeah. Just to follow up on that, I, I took, after mandalas, I took an interest in sand painting. 
And um, it was practiced by the Navajo and the Hopi, the Pueblo Indians. And I happened to be um, traveling across country and went on to the Hopi Reservation. And um, uh, there they, I went into a restaurant to have fried clams in the <laughs> middle of the desert. But I think it was a delicacy because they were really good. Uh, anyway, I asked uh, if I could see any sand paintings. And the waitress uh, disappeared, came back, said, no, we don't do that. Go see the Navajos. So the Hopi didn't create sand paintings. So I took it that they were still using the ritual of a sand painting to sort of center themselves, or center the person needing that centering process. And it might have been done in an isolated area with, uh, with one other person, uh, just, just as a means because they were, they were a little out of themselves. It could take up to two to three days, this ritual of creating a sand painting around the individual. And I was surprised when they said, no, we don't, we don't do those, and the Navajos did sell. Um, but then when I looked at the Navajos, I realized that even they, in doing their sand paints for commercial purposes, were also uh, changing the symbols slightly. Uh, so the Thunderbird might not represent the same, that same Thunderbird representing what it did in their culture for commercial purposes was changed. Yeah. And the colors could be changed. Little things in those symbols would be changed so they didn't feel that they were uh, losing any integrity of, of what they had meant. I think there's a good point about that. Um, I worked with Tibetan uh, refugees and also was in India around Tibet. And, um, of course, Tibetans also did sand paintings, sand mandalas. And then they, once finishing these very elaborate mosaic uh, pieces, they would then swish them away. You know, they were destroyed. And, um, and I think it brings up a good point about what we're talking about in terms of psychology and art, is that, that we can overthink. A lot of times when we uh, get out and start painting, we get very invested in what we're painting. And we um, are not, um, e we can't seem to jog ourselves from, we get very attached to a certain kind of look, you know, maybe a little swish on the paint, on the canvas that we say, boy, we got that right on, you know, and to, to kind of take a lesson from these guys, from the, the Navajo, you know, and the, and the Tibetans, that we can wash this away and we can recreate and we don't need to overthink or, or get too attached to anything. Yeah. I mean, that's part of uh, what we might want to talk about in terms of, you know, the psychological letting go process. Yeah. I, I think it's so true of painting. Uh, you can go out and paint and the first thing you want to do is let go of it, uh, <laughs> but then you pick it up again and you say, but I could fix this, this, and this, you know. Uh, it's a very tricky thing. Uh, to follow up, how, how the psychology really helped me was when I did decide to do landscapes, um, I realized my first problem was I, was I was hopping in the car and driving looking for the, the most beautiful spot to paint, which uh, I realized I was spending more time driving around looking for that beautiful spot. So I decided not to have a car and I would just walk until I put my easel down and then I'd set it up and paint. 
And so it was a rock in back of my house that was very unassuming, nobody bothered, a couple of blueberry pickers in the summertime, but basically nobody was up there but me. So it was a chance for me to study. And my first few efforts were really wanting, you know, really not very good. I spent a whole year doing, oh, I think I did 140, 150 paintings in one year. And out of that, I might have gotten 10 good paintings. So I realized I had to study. And so I, when I would go up there and I would just practice uh, rocks, I would practice rocks and shrubs, rocks, shrubs and trees, grasses, and I would just practice the elements of nature. And I think in reading the psychology that these small elements were such a major player in the, the psychology of building a landscape that a rock placed in the right place in a landscape could denote this sort of a, a quality or this sort of a feeling uh, archetype, um, and I saw that in trees and shrubs, all of nature had these skies, had all these qualities, and I continued to practice, but I always felt that my designing, which eventually, after two or three years of practicing, I was then ready to do a composition, I felt my compositions were more meaningful, maybe just to myself, uh, and not necessarily to those symbols and those thoughts get uh, get put out there in my painting to other and communicate to others that they have the same feeling but it didn't matter you know, because I it helped me to organize my thinking about what I was painting yeah I think that's a really good point uh, about um, I was out um, it, it just about evolving um, and uh, in your own personal way you know and, and placing things um, uh, in, in in front of you that that help you to or you resonate to like um, I was thinking too that um, there's so many things that um, have been overlooked around um, how uh, real professional painters go out and paint and and the lack of of any talk about we talk a lot of times about feeling and emotion, we say that, that uh, a painting needs a mood. You know, a painting has a, an emotional expression. And yet there's no way in which, I can't say that anybody has come up with a formula for putting out that, you know, for developing that mood in your painting. It's, it's a process that each individual artist goes through. And... Um, the other thing I was thinking about was how um, later on I thought that David and I would be doing something uh, which I was defining as artistic mindfulness. And that's where we would actually look at some of the ways in which uh, painters go through uh, the process of, of taking a painting from start to finish and, and, um, and all the ways in which we can... Uh, help ourselves move through that, you know, in a, in a more mindful, more conscious uh, endeavor, you know, trusting the process, uh, not overthinking it, you know, um, uh, getting into critiques. So I think also, uh, when we talk about psychology and art, uh, I think about the workshops that we go through and the ways in which uh, we, we paint and we paint together. You know, when we go out to the Essex Greenbelt, um, there, there are uh, 
usually about 10 or 15 people that are painting all together. Many times we'll have critiques afterwards. I think those critiques help to relax everybody and to recognize that, that um, we all have these serious inner critics. <laughs> and that critic is always saying, ah, oh, mine's just terrible, mine's horrible, you know, I should wipe it out. And then you put it with all these uh, other paintings and everybody gets a chance to talk about the paintings you begin to share your personal painting with others and you start relaxing. I think a lot of people begin to relax and uh, it helps it helps in in when you're also by yourself to not get so judgmental. Yeah, I think that inner critic is one of the worst things. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure any creative endeavor, my, my inner critic is a terrible person. I mean, everything yeah. I do, everything I write is just, yeah, that's terrible. You know, just, just start again. Psychology, <laughs> right. though, can also, uh, I mean, we're talking about this sort of inner aspect of this uh, looking within type mm -hmm. of thing, but it's also reflective of big things, right? It has this yeah. microcosm and the macrocosm qualities to it. Um, for instance, um, just talking about, uh, I, I can remember painting this rock that, uh, that was on top of the rocks, it just sat there. And this area had had glacier rocks emptied on top of it, this rock I was painting on. And this one rock puzzled me because it was made of the same material, this quartz infested granite, as the ledge that itself. So it wasn't put there by the glacier movement of the ice flow. Um, it was moved and I felt it had been moved by man. And, I, and it was a curious thing that the rock was there. It was an interesting shape, and I painted it many, many times. Years went by, and I bumped into a neighbor, and they said, David, I know you painted up on that rock for years. Um, do you realize they just discovered that it was an Algonquin solstice festival, that they would conduct this, they lined up these uh, stones that were left by the glacier in such a way that uh, they would find where the longest day and the shortest day of the year was on top of this ledge. It was like a giant sundial, I guess. Anyway, this one rock was the heelstone for the summer solstice. And so it was moved by man, and was moved by, um, by probably the Indians, the Algonquins, probably rolled it into this position because it would, it would line up with the stone from the other side that would say this is the longest day of the year. So in that sense of microcosm, also creating a macrocosm, uh, I thought it was very interesting, and that's what I that's what I discovered on top of this ledge for years that the psychology and I, I used to like to think it was symbols and symbolism or archetypes, but mm -hmm. I think it was it was much more refined than that, and I couldn't really come up with any conclusion. But you you know best. Well, I was thinking um, too that you you know this this idea that it's the macrocosm. I think that when we are talking about psychology and also uh, image making, you know, or creating uh, paintings, uh, images, we're connecting to the rock or to the tree or to the house and the, and the creek and, the, and, you know, it's all these things are, we, we develop a relationship when we start painting something out, outdoors. We're developing a relationship that we have 
until we end that painting. And then when we end that painting, we take it home with us and we still have remnants of that relationship that we had in that present moment. You know, and I think that is really uh, very precious. And, um, and I think that's also part of the impetus to go out painting many times is for us to experience those uh, intimate relationships that we have with a rock, with a, with a tree, with, with flowers. Um, and, and we can't do that unless we are doing some kind of creative as endeavor like, like oil painting. In art history, um, would there be a painting, a particular painting that would uh, sort of summarize some of the things we've been talking about? Oh, is there a particular thing? <laughs> Thank you for thing? asking that, because my mind is a total blank. <laughs> I don't Anything know. Anything comes to mind? I mean, I, if um, I think of the major people like Leonardo or Michelangelo. Uh, did they, they obviously created sort of archetypal ideas, such as the Mona Lisa obviously creates some sort of a psychological... Yeah, and I was thinking about Leonardo's um, adoration of the Magi, because it's a circular sort of thing. It has all these people... And all the people within are, are gesturing. They all have an emotion on their face. They, it could be sorrow, horror. Uh, but he, he was able, Leonardo da Vinci was able to do these wonderful crafted um, emotions on their, the faces. And each individual was looking. It's almost like a mandala, this adoration of the Magi. It's almost like... Uh, a uh, mandala that, that each individual is looking at the other individual and creating some kind of collective. Mm. That's interesting. I'll have to so, go back and look at it. I mean, it's yeah. so often I look at paintings and they, yeah, they're interesting, but I don't, I don't sort of analyze them like David would or look at yeah. them for psychoanalytical ideas like you do. It's, um, so those are interesting things, and obviously we should all learn to to look at a painting more deeply than just, well, that's a nice painting, that's right. a nice picture. For instance, I think nowadays, like Edvard Munch, The Scream, everybody likes to show that as having a psychological <laughs> meaning, but that's for a scream. You know? <laughs> right. uh, I think it might be very effective as The Scream, but I think there's a lot of other psychology, even Vermeer's wonderful interiors have a psychological quality to them. I agree. Uh, because it's an interior. Yeah, it's it's within. You know, yeah. yeah. And it's there's a beautiful woman. She's always doing something of a higher nature, usually, you know, uh, weighing pearls. Or <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but I think of a lot of other painters who painted these. Are they motifs? Are they archetypes? What, well, what? and I also think that what happens is that in the collective, as we might say, you know, that, that things happen historically, like Edvard Munch's The Scream. I mean, that came right at a time when there was a lot of alienation occurring in, in societies. You know, there was no longer, I mean, it was the um, industrial age, you know, there was no, they weren't agrarians anymore. It was, and it was sort of depicting that alienation in cities and the alienation that occurred around the uh, kind of separation from family units. So, um, so I think we get to, when people express through painting, uh, we get almost historical accounts hmm. 
of, of what society is doing at that present moment. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, Connie. Um, because, you know, as you say, these people are sort of creating these images and then when you look back on them, you see these timelines of art history and mm -hmm. so often the, the critics or the, the, the museums are trying to pigeonhole certain artists in certain times just for the kind of style of work they're doing. But as you say, for somebody like me who um, doesn't have a degree in art history, I look at it more from... Um, as you say, what, how the world was changing at that point, not so much because, well, this is Renaissance or this is Baroque. To me, that, that doesn't help, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Um, but when you see how, how life is changing for the, the peasants or the upper-class people who are having their portraits done and things like that, it does show you how, how the world is, is changing. For instance, we, we're, we talk about plain air painting a lot because that's uh, what we do. Um, why? So if we ask it from a psychological point of view, why is everybody in, in the 21st century, um, why is the plain air painting popular again? Is, are we losing touch with paradise? Are we losing touch with the Eden, the, the earth? Are we losing contact if, if you were to accept uh, theories about global warming? Whatever theories you believe, are we losing touch with this this beautiful innocence that was is is nature or is the planet Earth? You know, um, is that why we're painting these landscapes uh, to show people that this is beauty? Why you know, rather than painting cityscapes and high rises and to show man's achievement, you know, or um, you know, what, what? Why are we painting lands? Is there a psychological reasoning? I wouldn't know if there's a psychological... I mean, I only know... Um, I mean, we can follow trends. I, I wouldn't know. I just well, honestly wouldn't know. The psychology of the individual artist, that one person sees all these man-made buildings and, um, and cars and, and things mm -hmm. that go into perhaps a more contemporary painting, and you want to go back to those more peaceful days of the agrarian uh, idea that life was, um, it was probably hard, but it was still more idyllic um, mm. in our own mind. I think it's, if you look at a painting and you see a beautiful scene in nature, it's kind of soothing because you feel like, oh, you know, there's hope for the world yet. Whereas if you see a, um, a contemporary painting that's a, an urban cityscape, I feel like crowded by the people or the cars, the noise that I can hear in my head. It's, it's not restful to mm -hmm. me. But, but some people enjoy, I think, painting and are drawn to doing cars and, oh, yeah. and yeah, some so, of that but stuff. It, yeah, so, so that's an individual right. psychology. It, it also, uh, I'm, I'm reminded too that... Uh, um, that the uh, we haven't talked about the shadow side of individuals. You know, the yeah. shadow side is is a psychological term for sort of the unconscious, the the um, the dark side of a personality, um, the things that trouble us and distress us, and um, and in the creative process, uh, it's it's important that people recognize that, that, that these sorts of things arise mm -hmm. and, and are actually fodder and fuel for 
creating um, and and moving if you can move through uncomfortable feelings you usually rearrange something reorganize it and and as it's reorganizing on the canvas it's it's also altering in your mind yeah. and these are really wonderful healing events that can occur out of uh, what we're talking about in terms of psychology and art. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is a, actually a, a fascinating subject when you think about why we create and what we create and how we do it. Unfortunately, hmm. would you believe we're out of time here? So, but I hope that perhaps we can return to the subject, you know, maybe in another podcast because I think there's so much more we could still talk about. Mm. But thank you very much, Connie, and thank you, David, for, uh, for your observations. I know, once again, you're anxious to get out there to paint. So I'll just leave you with uh, yet another quote from Carl Jung, because uh, I think it's something that would apply to, to all of us. From the living fountain of instinct flows everything that is creative. Hence, the unconscious is not merely conditioned by history, but it's the very source of the creative impulse. And so I know all of our listeners there are anxious to go out and uh, impulsively create something. So have a great mm -hmm. day, a great week, uh, and we'll be right back here next Monday. Thank you very much for listening and have a good day. <laughs>